Good morning, Woodland Hills. Uh, I'm Greg Boyd, teaching pastor here. My wife got me this lovely t-shirt. Everything I touch is a drum, because it is. I'm known to drum while I'm driving, and I'm just a tapper. I'm a drummer, so there you go. Thank you, my love, for giving me this wonderful shirt. And if you're tuned again, if you're relatively new here, uh, I, I, I don't wear shoes, if you can see that. Uh, not because I, anything theological or anything, it's just that yeah, I get so hot and I get sweaty and I would never survive out in Houston where Sean comes from. So, hey, it was really good having Neil on the guitar here. Uh, he uh, uh, was in a band with Paul, a rock band back in the 80s. Did a famous song called Dark Morning. Actually, no one's ever heard of that song, but I've heard it and it's pretty dark. Okay, so there, there's Paul's pre-theological life. <laughs> so we're starting a new series here. Um, the last, uh, since the George Floyd murder, we have been just hunkering down on race uh, matters because given the history of this, the pervasiveness of this problem and the fact that the church is, uh, to a large degree, culpable for this, it warranted that kind of attention. Uh, we're moving on another venue now, but don't think that this is going to be off our radar screen. Um, well, it's always going to be on a radar screen, and there'll be times where we'll, even as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, need to weigh in on that. But we are starting this, this new series. Um, this is Jesus, a collection of Jesus' most famous teachings. This is, he's most, fam- most well known for this. And uh, what I want to do this morning, before we even get into the content of this, this sermon, um, is to ask the question, why should we listen to Jesus in the first place? This is going to be a real kind of basic apologetic message. And then I want to ask the question, like, why would you trust Jesus more than any other person who's got opinions about matters of life? Uh, in fact, why do Christians put all their trust in Jesus? What warrants that? What, are, what is it that warrants that kind of commitment? And the answer I want to give this morning is that Jesus alone, of all the folks in the world, Jesus alone, of all the folks throughout history, Jesus alone has the credentials to prove that he is an expert in the area of life's biggest questions. Uh, so I'm going to be looking at, 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 at why put our trust in him. There's, there's three goals I have here this morning. The first thing is this. Uh, for If you've been around Woodland Hills for any length of time, some of this is going to be review. Uh, but I think this is very important stuff to review. I find that uh, every so often I need to ask the, question, okay, wh- ask the question, why am I following this guy? Why am I leveraging everything on this? And I find that when I review the reasons why I have for believing in him, it strengthens my faith. It makes it more real. And so I'm hoping that, that reviewing this does that for, for, for some folks. Uh, second thing is, as I'm, I, I would like this message to be uh, kind of equipping you to be, uh, have some, take this as an example of, of things you can share with a non-believer who is maybe asking you, why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you follow his teachings? Peter tells us that we're supposed to always be ready to give an explanation for the hope that we have. And so uh, this is the kind of thing that uh, you might share with, with a non-believer if they ask you, why are you putting your trust in Christ? And then the third thing is that we've had a number of, of new folks join us in the last several months. And I imagine you're kind of like everyone else across the spectrum on, in terms of commitment to Jesus and growth and whatever. And I imagine there's some thanks to folks who are more on the fence than others. Maybe there's some who are tuning in and, and, and you're, not, you're not yet a committed Christian. And so uh, I would like you to just listen to this message and take this as an invitation to consider why you might 
uh, pledge all of your allegiance to, to Jesus Christ. And then, uh, as Shauna said, uh, after this, we're going to have a, a, a Stump the Pastors a kind of a Q&A time. So be thinking of questions and maybe objections or problems that you see, and text them in to the number, uh, that 321-3030, is that right? Um, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get to them. Paul, Eddie, and I will we'll address some of those uh, after uh, the message. In, in every area of life, it's important to know uh, who is the expert that you're going to trust. And uh, to illustrate that, I'd like us to watch this short little news clip. It's become an all too familiar scene across the country. People getting physical over wearing masks inside stores. It is required, but unfortunately, security guards are the ones getting hurt for just doing their jobs. Eyewitness News reporter Sid Garcia is live outside of Van Nuys Target, where they've had a number of fights over face coverings. Sid. Good morning, guys. On the latest one, a security guard was hurt. Take a look at the videotape here. This happened on May 1st at the Target you see here on Sepulveda Boulevard near Burbank, right off the 405 freeway. One of the suspects turns around and watch, throws a punch as he was being, he and another were being escorted out the door for not wearing a mask. Have you seen some of those? Uh, it's, it's pretty crazy all over the place. They've had uh, these fights breaking out over whether or not uh, you should wear a mask. Um, now, ask the question, why are these folks fighting? And obviously the answer is, uh, well, they have different opinions about the value of wearing masks. They have different opinions about uh, how, how much of a risk COVID-19 is. They have all sorts of other, you know, val how, how much say government should have in our lives and all those kind of things. They disagree on those things. But I'm pretty sure that the folks who are fighting, none of them have, are, were actually scientists who have done research on COVID and experimented with it and, and investigations on it. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that, that all of them have to trust other people's research and, and, and authority uh, for their opinion. They're, they believe what they've been told to believe because the authorities that they trust uh, have taught them this. So one group, uh, they put their, their trusted, like Dr. Fauci, um, and, and the, the other scientists, the major uh, organizations that deal with pandemics. Um, and, and therefore, they think it's very, very important to wear masks. Where the other group is listening to other authorities or other, uh, other folks and coming to, to different conclusions about that. Um, now, I don't know really what the credentials are of the, the second group are, the, the, the non-wet mask wearers. I imagine there's some doctors there, and they got the reasons for thinking what they think. But the, the credentials of Dr. Fauci strike me as very, very uh, impressive. Uh, this guy was the uh, national, he was a head of the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases since 1984. That's kind of impressive. Uh, he's advised six different presidents, uh, both Republican and Democrat, through some crises, including the aid crisis. In fact, he was the primary architect for the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, which I'm told has saved millions. Uh, he's recognized by other experts around the world, so he's got some pretty impressive credentials, and that's why if you ask me who I'm going to trust, I'm going to put my trust in this guy. And so if he says, wear a mask, I'm going to wear a mask. Uh, I think that's just the wise thing to do. He's the expert. He's got the credentials. I've got good reasons for trusting him, uh, more than I have for trusting any other source, so far as I can see. Now, if, if you want to learn how to pitch, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't consider going to Dr. Fauci. Here's another news little clip. And now one of the more well-known Washington National fans, Dr. Anthony Fauci, to throw out the first pitch. your pitch. 
Dr. Anthony Fauci. That was the single worst first pitch I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it's going towards the dugout. Uh, maybe it was just an over overdone curveball. I don't know. But so you, if you're looking at how to, if you want to learn how to, how to throw a ball, don't go to Dr. Fauci. He's not an expert on that by a long shot. But when it comes to pandemics, I think he's the guy to, to, to listen to. But here's the thing. See, life, modern life is so complex that it's impossible for any one person to be an expert in everything or even in most things or even in a number of things. It, it takes a lifetime to become an expert in one thing. And for that reason, most of what we, most of the information we get, we get from sources, the experts that we have to trust. And that's why looking at people's credentials is very, very important. I, uh, I'm not a car guy. Never been a car guy. I never, don't even get car guys. Uh, I, 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 guys who get into the engines and, and polish their cars and all that roaring engines. I just, it just doesn't do anything for me. So I've never paid much attention to cars at all. And um, for that reason, I'm very vulnerable when my car breaks down because I don't know squat. Uh, I know there's a steering wheel and an engine and some tires and that's about it. So I have to pay close attention to where I take my car because if I'm not careful, I could get taken to the cleaners. I probably have. I don't know it. I go in thinking something's wrong with my car. They tell me it's a transmission problem when all I needed was a new spark plug or something. How would I know? Yeah, I just... So, so I, 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 I have looked at uh, the place I bring my car is the place that we've looked at. We looked at the reviews, what other credentials, you know, and, and with the reputation and all of that. And it helps that the mechanic who works on my car is a member of Woodland Hills Church. And who's going to rip off their own pastor for crying out loud? Okay, so... But it just shows I have to trust the experts when it comes to cars. It's like that for, for, for most things. Uh, you, you need appliances, your appliances need to be fixed, or your, your roofing needs to be fixed, your deck, or, or your, your, your phone, your iPhone, or your computer, or any number of things. Very few people can do that on their own. You've got to pay attention to the experts. It's the same thing when you read a science book. What you know about science, what you know about history, what you know about most things, you get from some other source that you trusted to tell you about those things. We like to think that we're all independent thinkers. No one tells me what to believe. I just, I, I, I just do it on my own. But in truth, we're all dependent on authorities, all of us, for most of what we think. So the question you've got to ask yourself is, are you trusting the right authorities? Uh, what are their credentials? Why do you trust this authority as opposed to a different authority, especially on a controversial matter, especially when, like in a pandemic, lives can be at stake. We're told what to believe. Now, it's no different when we come to life's big questions. The real big ones, like uh, uh, what's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Why do we exist in the first place? Is there a God? What does God expect of us? Is there a life after death? And so on and so on. The big questions. There's a lot of opinions about this. A lot of books, a lot of religions, a lot of, a lot of options there. Who are you going to trust? Who are you going to trust? Um, now the Gospels put forth Jesus as the guy we should trust. He's the Dr. Fauci of the spiritual realm, if you will. And the Gospels give us the, his credentials. They tell us why they believe that Jesus is uh, the expert on these areas. Why you should listen to the Sermon on the Mount and apply it to your life. So for the rest of this message, what I'd like to do is review those credentials. Why, do they, why did they come to the conclusions they came to? Uh, what were the credentials that they saw? I want to start by uh, just looking at Jesus' claims, the claims that he makes. Now, just because someone claims to be an expert doesn't mean that they are an expert. But if they don't even claim to be an expert, you'd never consider them an expert. 
when I'm looking someplace to take my car, I don't go to the hair salon or to Walmart's or to the ice cream store uh, because they don't claim to be able to fix cars. They don't claim to be good at that. Uh, so I go, I first look at some place that claims at least to be able to fix cars. And then I got to ask the question, do I trust them in these claims? So the claims that Jesus makes are important. In fact, he claims to be in a position to know the answer to the life's big questions in a way that is without parallel. It's unprecedented. It makes some astounding claims. Uh, here's one you might consider. Matthew 11, verses 27 through 28. Sometimes I think uh, those of us who read the Bible... We get so used to hearing things like this from Jesus that they no longer surprise us. But I would like us to be surprised. Try to hear it like you're hearing it for the first time. He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, Jesus says, all of you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Let's think about this. All things have been delivered to me, Jesus says. All things. Makes that claim several times. He's saying that all authority and all power has been given to me. He's basically saying I could run the universe if I want to. Who talks like that? <laughs> That's quite a claim. Then he goes on to say that no one knows the Father except the Son and to whoever the Son wants to reveal him. Jesus is saying that no one knows God except for him uh, and whoever he reveals uh, God to. That's quite a claim. Now, there's got to be some hyperbole in this because Jesus clearly believed the Old Testament was divinely inspired. And even though you see a progress of revelation there, they got some things wrong. But surely Jesus thinks they, th they knew something about God. Uh, so when he says, no one knows God except me, I think he's, he's making a hyperbolic statement. But he's doing it for emphasis. Because what he's saying is, compared to what he reveals about the Father, it's as though no one else knew anything. And that is just a, an incredible claim. No one knows God except for me. The thing is, Jesus made claims like this all over the place. I'll give you a small sampling here. Jesus says, blessed are, the, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake. Now, this isn't the way that a good first century rabbi is supposed to talk. You're supposed to say, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness sake or for justice sake or, or for Israel or whatever. But no one says, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake. He puts himself at the center. The reason why people are, are going to be persecuted. He, he teaches his disciples to pray in his name. That's not the way you're supposed to do it in first century Judaism. Uh, you're, you're, you're saying pray with, with, with Jesus' authority. He's, he claims to have an authority that is different than the authority of all other human beings. Uh, Jesus said, uh, you've heard it said unto you, but I say unto you. Now what's going on there is Jesus is contrasting his teachings with some teachings of the past, including some teachings of the Old Testament. And so we read in the Old Testament three times uh, that, that you take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In fact, it requires you in two passages to take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus says, no, you know, you've heard that, but here's what I'm saying. Uh, turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Never retaliate. Love your enemies. Bless your enemies. Do good to your enemies. So Jesus is here expressing an authority that supersedes the authority of the Old Testament. Who does this guy think he is? He claims to have an authority that is more than the authority of the Old Testament. And since he believes, he himself believes that God inspired the Old Testament, well then he clearly believes that everything he's saying is inspired by God. 
Even more so because it supersedes what, what, what went on in, in the past. It gets worse. He says things like, I was, I was glorified with the Father before the world began. He seems to have had an awareness, at least towards the end of his life, that he pre-existed. And he was glorified in his pre-existent state. He says, I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of he who sent me. John 6, 33. Now, most of us are just born, right? But Jesus is aware that his origin is from heaven. He claims to have this authority that no one else has. He uh, presents himself as the judge of all humanity at the end of the days. And every Jew knows that only God is the judge of, of, of humanity. But Jesus puts himself in that position. He says, I give life to whoever I choose. And the dead will hear my voice and they will rise. Who talks like that? Most astounding of all, in John, we find that Jesus takes the I am. This is, now, the I am is the name of God that's given in, uh, from the burning bush. And back in Exodus 3, when Moses sees this burning bush, and then he hears a voice talking to him. And at the end of the discussion, he, uh, he says, who shall I say is, is sending me? And the Lord responds, uh, which is translated in Greek in the Septuagint, which is what the early disciples were relying on. It's translated as I am. I am that I am. And Jesus several times says this, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. In, in, in John 18, uh, they, he, some folks approach him and, and Jesus says, I am. Not I am he, but I am. They ask him, are you Jesus of Nazareth? He goes, I am. Doesn't add the pronoun he. And when he says, I am, they all fall back. Because there's a power to that divine name. That's what John's communicating here. So Jesus claims for himself this, I am. He says he's come that all may honor the Father... Uh, they all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Uh, in fact, he says, no one honors the Father unless they're honoring the Son. Think about that. He's referring to himself here. Uh, it, it's a, how what would you think of me if I were to say, hey, you guys, hey, hey, show me some respect here, okay? A little bit of respect. Just think of me the way you think of uh, mm, God. Honor me the way you'd honor God, okay? Is that too much? In fact, here's the thing. If you don't honor me, you're not honoring God. Yeah, you think I'm loony. Call a paddy wagon. He's off his rocker. It's not without reason that there's been a number of secular psychiatrists uh, over the last century that have written articles and even books arguing that Jesus was a megalomaniac. Narcissist is crazy. Because if he's not telling the truth, that's kind of your only option. Um, and he sounds like that. And at one point he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Philip says, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And he goes, have I been so long with you and yet you don't know me? If you see me, you see the Father. Why then do you ask, show us the Father? He claims to be the embodiment of God. The very revelation of God. If you're looking at me, you're looking at the character of God. That's what he's saying. It's a radical, radical claim. Did you know that, that I mean, this is why some folks thought he was demon-possessed and others thought he, they, even contemporaries thought he was out of his mind. In fact, his, his own family, early on in his ministry, thought he'd lost his mind. Think about this. Mark 3. It says this. Where's Mark 3? Here it is. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And then when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. John 7 says, even his own brothers did not believe him. Now, that raises questions like, how is it possible that his family early on didn't believe in him? Okay, that, that's a puzzling thing. Uh, it, it's what scholars would call an, an, embarrass, an embarrassing statement. And 
if the Gospels were trying to fabricate anything, this is exactly the kind of thing they would have left out. There's no motive for them to include this here, this troubling material here, except that they're interested in reporting it like it was, and this actually happened. It's puzzling as to why his brothers didn't believe him, but what is, I think, amazing is that his disciples did believe him. Families back home, Jesus out there going out on the hillside of Galilee, and those who are following him, his closest disciples, and then after that there's crowds, but they believe him. Despite the crazy, crazy statements, the claims that he's making, they believed him. And you can tell that they believed him because the New Testament, written all by his disciples, uh, it presents him as fully God and fully human all over the place. Uh, they, they ascribe divine titles to Jesus that, that every Jew knows can only be ascribed to God. So they call, they call him God several times. He's, he's called Lord, uh, Kurios, he's Savior, he's the Bridegroom, he's the Alpha and the Omega, and all these things are things that every Jew would know is, only applies to Yahweh, and yet they apply it to Jesus. Uh, activities that only God does are applied to Jesus. He's the judge of the world, and he's the creator of the world. Every Jew knows there's only one judge and one creator, and that is God. And yet, these monotheistic first century Jews ascribe that to Jesus. Probably most shocking of all is that they pray to Jesus and they worship Jesus. You find that in the New Testament. Um, and every Jew, of course, knows that there's only one who's to be prayed to and only one who's to be worshipped, and that is Yahweh. So Jesus made these incredible claims, and the disciples believed him. The question I want to now ask is, why did they believe him? I mean, what would it take to convince you that a contemporary uh, of yours was, was the embodiment of God? Probably a lot. But see, for these monotheistic Jews, it would require even more than that. Because as monotheistic Jews in the first century, they, every morning they recite this Shema Israel, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And they believe as a fundamental tenet of their faith, they're raised with this, that God is God and humans are humans and never the two are combined or confused or mingled they were especially adamant about this because all the pagans around them, those Greeks, they were always divinizing men. The emperor was divine. And, and, and that was just so offensive to Jews to think that a human being is God. It was just offensive. And so they doubled down on this. And yet Jesus comes along and makes these claims. And somehow the disciples, rather than concluding he's crazy, they conclude that he's telling the truth. Why? Now, this is Jesus' credentials here, right? I can break them down into four categories. First, Jesus taught with this unprecedented authority. Uh, you find this comment made a number of times in the Gospels. Uh, for example, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we read this. It says, Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teachings. For he taught them as one having authority, exousia, and not as the scribes. Uh, Exousia is, is, it refers to an authority or a power that commands assent or commands allegiance. It's just got that gravitas to it. And see, when Jesus was teaching, people could just sense this gravitas. They sense that there's a power here, there's a, a wisdom here that is not your typical human stuff. And not even just the best human stuff. It's not like the scribes. It's not just like regular smart people. There's an authority that comes from above. It's, it's, it's superhuman, and it compels uh, assent and allegiance. And note that this is said after the Sermon on the Mount. And I submit to you that if you read the Sermon on the Mount with an op open eye. In fact, I, I want to encourage you at some point as we're going through the series, it might as well be this week. We're all locked in anyway, so might as well read the Bible, okay? Uh, I, I encourage you to read uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, in one sitting. 
as though you were listening to it and try to hear it as, imagine Jesus speaking these words as you're hearing them. And have an open heart and open mind because people throughout history have said that that same exousia, that same authority is found in well, we, we have the same impact that, that, that it had back then. Uh, it, 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 there's, a, there, there's a power to it, an authority to it. It commands assent if your heart is open to it. With an open heart, I encourage you to read that. So here's the thing. Crazy people don't usually have this supernatural authority, this exousia, this wisdom. They're not usually known for that. And yet Jesus is, and that's one of the things that convinced the disciples that this guy's not off his rocker. He's actually telling the truth. Secondly, uh, his blameless life. Uh, Jesus, when he died, he left the reputation among his disciples that he was sinless. The people who were closest to him say that he was sinless, without sin. How many people do you know are gonna, that are going to leave this world with that reputation? Hmm? Not many. Uh, when I die, I'm pretty sure that on my gravestone, if I have a gravestone, uh, no one's going to write, Greg Boyd, blah, 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 and he was sinless. <laughs> it's not going to happen. I doubt they would write that on your tombstone either. Uh, but yet, they, this is the reputation that Jesus left these folks. And see, here's the thing. Uh, megalomaniacs usually aren't known for their blameless life, their holy living, uh, their loving nature, and not usually. And this is one of the things that convinced the disciples that Jesus was not off his rocker. He was actually telling the truth. Third thing is about his ability to heal people and to drive out demons. For three years, in public, Jesus had this ministry where he was healing the deaf, healing the blind, the lame, the lepers. Uh, it, every infirmity he encountered, he delivered people from that in a supernatural way. When he came upon people who were demonically oppressed, he freed them from that, uh, that oppression. Now that's pretty impressive, three years of doing this in public. Several times he even raised some people from the dead. Um, those are pretty impressive credentials. Anyone who's got that kind of power and uses it for that much good is worth paying attention to, even if they're making divine claims. Megalomaniacs don't tend to be able to cast out demons and to, to heal people. This guy does, and that's one of the things that convinced his disciples that he's not crazy. He's actually telling the truth. And the fourth thing, and the most important thing probably, is that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, because Jesus was making these claims, which in the first century Jewish culture, some of them would be regarded as blasphemous. That's what he was charged with. And, and because he was attracting large crowds, and because he was critical of the, the establishment, well, he got crucified. But he didn't stay crucified. Uh, on the third day, he rose again. And were it not for this, it, most scholars agree that Jesus would be known as some kind of a faith healer or something, but it'd be pretty much a footnote in history if it were not for the resurrection. Because even his, early, his closest disciples after the crucifixion, they were, they were destroyed. They lost their faith. They, they thought it was over. And it would have stayed that way if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, but he rose. Uh, look at what Paul says about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, a very interesting passage for a number of reasons. Paul says, For I handed on to you as of first importance, this is crucial, because this, this is credentialing here, okay? As of first importance, what I in turn had received. We know Paul met with the apostles in Jerusalem shortly after his conversion, and, and this is probably where he received this uh, tradition. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's another word name for Peter, and then to the twelve. 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, born he appeared also to me. Okay, several things about this. Um, this is written about 20 years after Jesus was crucified, around the early 50s, um, which in, by historical standards is a blink of an eye. You're right on top of the event. But it's closer to the event than that because he's passing on material that he himself had received. Okay, so this predates Paul. He uses this term handed over. It was handed over to me. The word there is paradidomai. And it's a word that was used for the passing on of sacred tradition. And this is tradition that it's sacred. You don't, you don't alter it. You don't modify it. Uh, you, you keep it the way it is. In fact, this, this whole section here has a kind of a creedal flow to it, which is typical of sacred traditions. And so, so Paul here is passing out what he received, and he's actually reminding the Corinthians of this because they had already heard this before. So for all intents and purposes, shortly after Jesus' death, there is this sacred tradition that, 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 that has developed that lists the people that Jesus appeared to. And it's of first importance, because this is what credentials, more than anything else, what credentials Jesus as being the expert, as being the, 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 the person who's in the, the position to know what he's talking about. Several things about this are really interesting. Paul mentions that he, at one point Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time, and most of those people are still alive. And the whole force of saying most of those people are still alive, though some have died, the whole force of that is to say, you could go ask him if you want. In all probability, folks who had witnessed the resurrected Lord were known in the early church. It wasn't that big at this point. Uh, and it would be a badge of honor to have, have uh, encountered the, the resurrected Lord. And Paul is saying, go, go ask these people. If you don't believe me, believe me you can ask these people. And then he, he, points, he mentions that Jesus appeared to James alone. Now what's really interesting about that is that, as I already showed, showed you, uh, James and the other brothers of Jesus wasn't a believer during Jesus' lifetime. And I, I don't find that hard to really believe. I think the, the most reluctant convert in the world would be the younger brother of the Son of God. Uh, you talk about sibling rivalry, uh, that, that would be pretty nasty. So he's reluctant. But you've got to ask the question then. We know that James became a believer. He, uh, he uh, is mentioned by Paul in, in Galatians 1. Uh, he heads up the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15. He wrote one of the books of the Bible, for crying out loud. So he becomes a, a follower of his older brother. The question you've got to ask is, what convinced him? If, 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 if in Jesus' lifetime he wasn't convinced, how did he get convinced after he got crucified, which is the last thing that you would think a Messiah would happen to a Messiah? If anything, his death should have reconfirmed James' unbelief. Well, if Jesus appeared to him personally, hey, younger brother, I'm alive. Uh, that might do the trick. In fact, I can't imagine anything less than that that, that would do the trick. So, if you don't think the resurrection happened, you've got to ask the question, what convinced James after Jesus' death that he was the Messiah? Something happened. Something happened. Uh, and Paul tells us what that is. If we don't accept that, then what's the alternative explanation? In fact, if we don't accept the resurrection, how do you explain all the names that are listed, all the people that are listed in, in this passage? Now, some suppose that maybe it was a hallucination, a mass hallucination. That was, uh, that, that's one heck of a hallucination. <laughs> 500 people at one time. One author went so far as, and this just shows you uh, it's an act of desperation, how hard this is to explain unless you accept the reality of the resurrection. But one author su su suggested, without any 
corroborating evidence, that uh, these, these folks were all on mushrooms. <laughs> they, were, they were higher than kites. And <laughs> Jesus, whoa, dude, check out Jesus. Highly unlikely. Um, four things, at least, are wrong with this hypothesis. One is that, um, are we to believe that all these folks had the same hallucination and all mistakenly took it for the real Jesus? That seems improbable. Um, the reports don't, secondly, the reports don't read like they were about a hallucination. I mean, according to the reports, Jesus uh, hung out with them after his death for 40 days. Uh, he taught, he ate, he ate dinners with them. I mean, this isn't the kind of thing that you would expect from a hallucination. At one point he says to Thomas, you can put your finger into my side where he was pierced uh, by, by the guard. So it just, they don't read it all like hallucinations. And the final thing is that hallucinations don't generally transform lives. Um, but these folks were all transformed. Uh, they went from being a scared group of, of, of disciples who are hiding out because they're afraid of authorities, and then uh, they are transformed after they encounter the risen Lord and receive the Spirit. They're transformed into these brave disciples. We sang it earlier. You make me brave. Well, Jesus made them brave. And they went out in the world proclaiming this message. Uh, and they were willing to die for it. And they were willing to see their loved ones die for it in some of the most unthinkable ways. And none of them retracted their testimony. Hallucinations don't do that. They, they just don't. Uh, these things, folks, were transformed. All that, I think, uh, goes to uh, the, the reality of the resurrected Lord. So it comes down to this. How do you explain how a small band of, of uh, monotheistic Jewish disciples in the first century uh, came to believe against all of the, the teachings that they were raised with that this fellow contemporary of theirs, James is among the believers now, how did... So this isn't long, long ago, far, far away. His younger brother's here. His mother's part of the entourage as well. Uh, how, what convinced them that this man was the Son of God, Yahweh embodied, the Messiah, the Savior, the Judge of the world? What could have convinced them? Now, if they, they tell us, well, he, yeah, yeah, you know, it sounds crazy, but, but, but he had this incredible authority. His teachings still do. And he lived his blameless life. And he did these miracles and freed people from a spiritual bondage. And after he was crucified, he rose from the dead. That's why we believe. That gives him credentials. And see, if all those things are true, then everything that needs to be explained is explained. In fact, if those things aren't true... <laughs> It would take something about as radical as the Jesus we find in the Gospels to have convinced these folks against all of their training that a fellow contemporary of theirs was the embodiment of Yahweh. But if you don't think that the resurrection's real or you don't think that they're reporting it accurately, then the, then the question is, what's your explanation? Uh, if it's not what they say it is, then how did they get it wrong? See, I, 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 my inability to explain the transformation of the early disciples is one of the reasons why I've decided to make Jesus the expert in all of life's big questions. Um, the, the, the credentials that the disciples saw that convinced them that this guy was Yahweh embodied are the same things that convinced me that Jesus is Yahweh embodied. There, there, there are other things as well, but this is the core of it. So in life's biggest questions... I consider Jesus to be the expert. There's a lot of voices out there, a lot of claims, and I'm sure there's good insights in many of them. I'm, I'm not going to say it's all fake news or something like that. Uh, we don't have a corner on the truth, but 
Jesus has got credentials like nobody else in history to convince us that he is, in fact, the expert on these things. I've got far more reasons for trusting what this guy has to say about life's important questions than I have for anything else. That's why I'm going to read the Sermon on the Mount differently than I read anything else. This has exousia. It's got an authority that comes from above, a wisdom that comes from above. Paul goes so far as to say in Colossians chapter 2 that all the treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. And anytime Paul says Christ, you gotta remember he's talking about the crucified and risen Christ. It's all found in the crucified Christ. All that you need to know about God and, and uh, it, life's big questions, it's found right in him. And that light, we, why, we don't need to go to any other source to answer those big life questions. Now, if you're looking to try to understand uh, science or appliances, no, I, I don't think Jesus is authority there. Uh, but when it comes to life's big questions, the purpose of life, is there a God, what's God like, and so on and so on, I encourage you to consider Jesus to be the Dr. Fauci of the spiritual realm, the expert that you look to, the expert that you trust. Listen to credentialed experts. For my two cents, if Dr. Fauci says, keep safe distance, I'm going to keep safe distance. And if he says, wear a mask, I'm going to wear a mask. For the same reason, when Jesus says, uh, blessed are the meek, uh, blessed are the poor, take up your cross and follow me. It's better to uh, serve than it is to be served. Uh, when Jesus says these things, I'm going to listen to him. If you're wise, uh, listen to the expert. This is the expert of the spiritual realm. Take what he says, uh, apply it to your life. So as we go through the Sermon on the Mount in the series, and who knows how long the series is going to last, and we're going to take breaks from it now and then, but I want us to read this as, as like this, the, way you'd, well, the way I would read a memo from Dr. Fauci in the middle of a pandemic or any expert on pandemics in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, read it as though your life may hang in the balance. Uh, as, I read the, as we read this thing, we're listening to the expert of experts on life's biggest questions. And um, we do wise to apply it to our life. I, I, I want us to be reading that with it. Reading this, listening to this message, this sermon, as though everything depended on it because as a matter of fact, I think everything does. All right, let's uh, call up Paul and Shauna and have ourselves a little discussion here. And as we do this transition, I'm supposed to have something smart to say uh, to make it less awkward, but uh, I, I always forget that fact, and so I never have anything prepared. So I'm just kind of just making this up as I go along. How are you doing today, <laughs> I'm lovely Shauna? I'm so well. How are you? I'm doing very, very well. Should I call you lovely as well? Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> You look you lovely. lovely. You, know, you, say, you look stunning. Stunning. Yeah. Sorry, you yeah, look stunning. Well, my stunning. wife's coming here yesterday, so that's Aww. why. Yeah? That's why. My new, my new, my new do. Well, the stage is immediately like elevated right now because we've got Paul with us. So <laughs> everything just got <laughs> taken up a notch. All right, so you're Greg Boyd. I thank you. I yes. forgot for a moment. Yes. Paul Eddy is with us. Paul Eddy is one of our teaching pastors here at Woodland. We're so thankful for his voice. I'm Shauna Boren, one of the pastors here. And so thank you for sending in your questions. We've been getting them. And so uh, you guys are going to do your best to answer these questions. Um, we can still we'll take a few. So the number is 651-321-3030 if you still want to send something in. All right. Stomp the pastors. Stomp the pastors. <laughs> Are you guys ready? Let's go for it. All right. Yeah. So um, I'm going to start with you, Paul. Let's give Greg a right. moment to just oh, catch you. some breaths. Um, so Greg laid out fairly well 
really well, uh, the case for Jesus and his authority as to why, as we're leading into the Sermon on the Mount series, like why, why are we paying attention to what this guy Jesus had to say? Yeah. Why is it so important? And so there is a small clarification question that I would love for you to address. And what it is that um, in Matthew, it's referred to the Sermon on the Mount, but in Luke, it's referred to Jesus speaking on a plane. Oh, yeah. Can you um, help us? It's P-L-A-I-N, by the way. <laughs> not 747. Not P-L-A-N-E. Not that which goes to the not air. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's an interesting question. Good question. Um, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, as Greg said, is these three chapters in Matthew. Uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And the way Matthew opens that up is saying that Jesus went up on the, this mountain. Interesting, uh, it, in Luke 6, uh, Luke has not all of the three chapters, but part of it, uh, some of the Beatitudes and things, I think you'll probably be talking about this more when we get to the Beatitudes, but Luke says that, that Jesus went to, to what's usually translated as, as a flat place or a plain. Um, I guess two things I'd say about this. Some, some critics of the Bible have used this to say, oh, we have a contradiction here. Uh, Luke uh, says that Jesus stood on a, on a plane. Matthew says he was st- standing on a mountain. They can't both be true. So we have a moment of, of the Bible contradicting itself. Just to say something about that. Um, the actual Greek word that's, that's translated plain there, or, or, or it can actually be translated a level standing place, um, many scholars have pointed out that it, it can also be translated plateau. And so it's possible, if you're trying to reconcile these, these two descriptions of where Jesus did this teaching, one could say, well, he, he's up on a, on, in the hill country, mountain was often used for the hill country of Galilee, Um, but Jesus found a plateau on a hill. So uh, there isn't a necessary contradiction here. But I I don't think that's really getting to the heart of the issue. Let's ask the question, um, what does mountain, Jesus goes up on the mount, what does that mean for Matthew? And it's pretty clear, I think Greg will get into this as, as the sermon continues over the weeks, that what, what Matthew's probably doing is he's comparing Jesus' teaching on this mountain to the way in which Moses, way back in the book of Exodus, went up on the Mount Sinai and received teachings from God. And so Moses uh, is sort of a, a prefiguring of this prophet Jesus. And you're going to see this really all through the whole book of Matthew, is that Mo, uh, Matthew keeps comparing Jesus to Moses. Now, why, why would Matthew do this? Really important to remember that in um, Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 18, um, Moses says to the people of Israel, there will one day be, uh, come a prophet who is going to be like me, when he comes, listen to him, for he's going to teach the commandments of God. And this prophecy from Moses, way, way back in history, had always been with the Jews. They were always looking for this, this prophet who's going to come. And what Matthew's doing by comparing him to Moses here is going, this is the guy. This is the one that hundreds of years ago, Moses said, be looking for this guy. When he comes, he'll have the commandments of God. And lo and behold, the next three chapters are just teachings coming forth from the mouth of Jesus. So what we have here really is, is Matthew going, hey, Messiah, this is the Messiah. So it's, it's a really important uh, thing to catch. Right at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus is set off as the Messiah who's teaching the very commandments of God. 
I like that. Hey, Messiah. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I, there, there's, I mean, you're right. You see that parallel going on throughout Matthew where like, Jesus, he's persecuted or he's threatened as a child as Moses yep. was. And yep. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience so he's really invested in making this connection that Jesus is the new Israel yeah. and, and Jesus is the new Moses. And in that light, if the law was, that was given to Moses, um, that he gave to the children of Israel, that, that was kind of their constitution. That was the, the foundation yeah. of their, their life together. And so also, now Jesus is giving this, our constitution. This is kind of our, our charter. This is yeah. how our life is to be. The, the parallel works out like that. It, it's all, it, also possible that, um, you know, the, the, the sayings of Jesus were circulated orally before they were ever written down. Yeah. And, and, um, uh, it, it, it could be, a lot of scholars argue that, what we have in, in, in both Matthew and Luke is they're pulling together the, the kind of the core yes. of Jesus' yeah. teachings in one package. Now, Jesus taught a lot of different places, uh, and it could just be that for, uh, for, for redactional reasons, uh, Matthew emphasizes a sermon that Jesus gave up on a mountain uh, and then builds the teaching around that, whereas Luke does it on, on a plane. So yeah. even if you don't accept the... the, the the, the, the explanation that there's a plateau on a mountain, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, they just are, are organizing the material for different reasons. Yeah. Well, that leads to our next question um, that uh, people are wondering. So we um, have seen you lay out a case for Jesus' authority, a, right. really, a really good case. Um, but Jesus himself never wrote down his teachings. Like right. Jesus isn't published. And so we have been left as, as followers all these years later to read gospel and the gospel writings and trust what we see about Jesus there. Right. But Greg, you wrote a little book. I don't know if you remember this. <laughs> but you wrote this little book in which you, ta- you, you talked about the fact that there could be errors in the Bible. And so now how do we know uh, if we're just supposed to believe what these gospel writers had to say or if there are errors in what they wrote. Greg, what's up with that book? Crucifixion of the Warrior God and Cross Vision. <laughs> you might want to get that, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, no, actually, no, the book you're referring to is, uh, is Inspired in Perfection. Yes. Yes, that's, that's that one. Plug uh, well, them all, why don't you? Just <laughs> you know, <laughs> considering the, court, the, the, the case I just made there, uh, it it really is irrelevant whether there are minor contradictions in the Gospels or not. It it doesn't matter because you still have to explain the faith of the early church. Whatever else you think about the Gospels, they express the faith of these early disciples in Jesus. And that's what needs explaining. And they give reasons for the explanation. If someone came to the conclusion that, you know, Luke was a better, better had more historical accuracy than Matthew or, you know, it doesn't affect that argument at all. It, it stands regardless. So for the purpose of that argument, I'm treating the Gospels not as divinely inspired, but just as, as records of the early, early disciples. Um, now I have other reasons for thinking that they're inspired, but that comes after I r- arrive at faith in Jesus. Um, so yeah, I think the argument stands uh, uh, regardless of that. Does that flow for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, you and I spent what? four or five years working on this book, Jesus Legend, back in the day. And yeah. that, that was really our, our project in that book, right? Totally. Uh, it's this rather long book in which we, we, we but stepped... well worth reading. <laughs> well, <laughs> we stepped back from, the, from our belief of just saying, well, we're Christians, and so we trust this book just, you know, well, because we're Christian. We said, what would historians who might not even be Christian, uh, just uh, looking at the actual historical data of the Gospels, 
what can we demonstrate in terms of their reliability? And at the end of that, you and I, I remember we talked about that saying, we were surprised how much more convinced we were yeah. by the evidence having spent four years looking it's at it. That's actually pretty strong stuff. Yeah, it, it, it's, 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 it's remarkable how um, these ancient texts, these four ancient texts, uh, written in the, in the you know, mid to late first century, have all of the earmarks of historical veracity, historical truth, and that um, you don't need to be a Christian to come away from these texts going, this looks like these people were reliable in their basic presentation of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I remember you and I just saying our, our faith was really strengthened by just looking at these as historical documents. I, we were taking on, we took on every, every possible legendary hypothesis where mm-hmm. people say that this is a result of legend, le- legendary development, whatever. Jesus started by being a good guy, whatever, but he evolves into the Son of God. And among the many problems with that thesis is that you just don't have any time for that. Yeah. Uh, and, and you have so many other control mechanisms to prevent that. One being James. If this is a legend, if growing up about his older brother, uh, he's not going to buy that. <laughs> My brother didn't do those things. What are you talking about? Uh, and, and so you have the brother, you have the mother of Jesus in the crowd. And, and so this isn't a story a long time ago, far, far away. This is a fellow contemporary. No time yeah. for legendary development. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Uh, Greg, you laid out in the beginning of your sermon, you talked about authority. And uh, as much as we like to think that we're free thinkers, most of us do follow some sort of authority in yep, our life. Yep. And again, you're laying out the, uh, the case for Jesus being our ultimate authority. And so we have a question that's wonder that basically says, um, if Jesus had acquiesced his authority to anyone other than the Father, it would have been a totally different story, right? He, but his, the only authority he, father, he followed was his Father's. Right, right. Um, how or how, can you speak to about when and how it's appropriate to question authority? Hmm. Either of you can take this. I find authority, authority always wins. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that's it, not an answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's a cool old song. Hating myself here. John Cougar Millencamp. It's not as good as Dark Morning, but, but it, it, it's up there. It's up there. Um, so, yeah, the. Wait, wait, say, say it again. I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> All right. If Jesus had acquiesced his authority that wasn't to his Acquies. father, everything would have changed. But can, oh, you okay, speak, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So can you speak to about when yeah, and yeah. how it's appropriate to question See, authority? I, I, I think it's, from my two cents, it's always appropriate to question authority. Um, at least, especially if there's competing authorities, because how else do you know what, what, which one is right? Now, once I come to the conclusion that Jesus is going to be my authority, uh, now I'm not going to just spend my time questioning everything he says because I've got reasons for thinking that everything he says is wise and, and it comes from an expert. But uh, I, I didn't just adopt that position. I, that, that's, that's why credentialing is all important. Mm-hmm. I think it's always important to ask, what are your credentials? Why should I trust in you? I don't think that's rebellious or anything. That's just being... In fact, to not do that means that whatever authority got to you first is the one that you're going to believe, <laughs> you know, uh, which isn't point. the most rational way to go about trying to discern truth. Right. Paul, what do you think? Yeah. Well, it's interesting question. And as I, as I thought about this over the years, how do we know anything? Maybe, you know, how, how do we know any, anything that we say we know? How do we know that? Yeah. Or why, what makes us think we know that? And it seems to me that all the reasons you could have for knowing any particular thing boil down to one of three reasons or some combination of them reason, so some, some logic got you there, experience, 
you've actually experienced it with the five senses, or you trust somebody. Back to authority, right? Right. And so, to Greg's point, um, anytime we're, we're, we're asked to trust somebody, it's going to be very hard to actually put our trust in that thing or person if our reason or our experience are against that thing, right? And so what we usually feel very strong about are the things where all three of those come together, where our, uh, something seems reasonable, where we've experienced something that makes sense of that, but we also have a source of trust beyond ourselves. And I think what, what you've done today shows us that this call of Jesus to trust in me is, is both reasonable, there's evidence for that, and we can also experience, yeah. like, experience Jesus' reality. Exclusive, so yeah. when those three things come together, that's where I think our, our strongest sense of something being true or believable comes. I think Jesus, you've shown us, has that sort of uh, coming together with three streams of way, uh, how we yeah, know yeah. something. And, and people are wired differently. So for some folks that, that experience, you know, they, they feel mm-hmm. Jesus, yeah. that, that's enough for them. You know, they, yes. uh, for others of us, I, I don't trust my own experience. I, I, I've had some really good experiences that aren't trustworthy. Yeah. Uh, so, we don't want to know about those. Yeah, yeah so, that, was, that was in the 70s, Greg. Let's, let's not talk well, about that. The early disciples weren't the only ones that did mushrooms. <laughs> the young age. Uh, powerful experiences, on. but totally untrustworthy. Oh, so I hope my grandkids aren't watching right now. So, um, oh, yeah, yeah, but, but uh, yeah, for that reason, I, I, I'm, I'm critical of experience, but the obje- objective evidence is much more compelling to me. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> We're asked here. Oh, yes, we are. Okay, so isn't the foundational question in believing that Christ is who he claims to be is first to answer the question, is the Bible really true? Mm. So do you have to believe the Bible to be true in order to believe yeah, uh, See, I, 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 it kind of goes back to an earlier question. Yeah. Um, that is kind of the way that uh, Christians have traditionally operated. You know, God said it, I believe it, that sells it for me. The Bible's the final authority on things. Um, and in, in my book, Inspired Imperfection, I, I, I really think that's a misguided way of going about things. Yeah. The, the early disciples didn't believe in Jesus because they found him in the Old Testament, right. in, the, in their sacred writings. Uh, they rather found him in their sacred writings because they first believed in him, and they believed in him because of the credentials. And so uh, the, the foundation of my faith isn't uh, the... the the reasons why I believe aren't founded in the Bible as, as, as the Word of God. It's founded in our historical analysis, and there's philosophical reasons I would bring into that as, as well. Um, now, once I believe in Jesus, now he gives me reasons for believing in the Bible. So I, I think this is the foundation for you know, the, the doctrines of the church and things like that. But in terms of what's called the epistemic foundation, how, how do I know this? Uh, I, I wouldn't just quote the Bible. That's circular reasoning. You know, people say, well, how do you know the Bible's true? Because it says in... 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is inspired. Well, yeah, but why? That's right. part of the Bible. That's, right, that's, if I don't believe that. begging the question, yeah. <laughs> right. So we can question some things well, in the Bible. A, I think it's a, it's a little more tricky than that, right? I mean, I get your point. There's total circular reasoning if you say, well, I believe the Bible. Why? Because the Bible says it. Why do you believe that? Because I believe the Bible. There's oh, circular reasoning. Yeah, yeah. But um, when we wrote Jesus' legend, we also said, but wait a minute. The only, and I think this is the, point of the question here, um, the only way we have any access to who Jesus was or what he taught mm-hmm. is the Bible, right? Yeah. And so we have to have enough confidence in the basic 
okay, yes. report. Absolutely. That, that's generally true in order to get to Jesus. So there is a sort of a, a but, dance here. But the way you establish that confidence isn't by quoting the Bible. Right. That's where you do historical yes. research, yes. and that's what I'm talking about. Yep. So when you, I, I, I distinguish between reading the Bible or reading the Gospels as just historical documents, subjecting them to the same kind of historical criteria we usually do, that's one way of reading the Bible. The other ones is as the inspired Word right. of God. Right, right, right. Uh, there's a place for both, but the foundation of my faith is in this right. uh, stuff, not in the uh, inspiration. So why do you guys think people tend to get a little nervous? Not everyone, but some tend to get a little nervous when you start questioning things that you read in the Bible. I think it's because uh, a lot of religious authorities teach people that it's wrong to question. Mm -hmm. It's wrong to doubt. How dare you question me? And, mm -hmm. and it's because they don't have answers to a lot of the questions people have. So if you don't have answers, the only alternative is to tell people to shut up. Uh, and so if, if you're trained in that, mm -hmm. and someone comes along and says, well, why should I believe that? They're like, oh, what? You know, that, that's sacrilege. You're questioning this. Right. You don't question the pastor. What? Crying out loud. Well, and Paul, you, I don't know if you know this, but you teach theology. You're a professor of I, I think he does know that. Yeah. <laughs> so how does, I mean, do you encourage questioning things or, or do you toe the line? Or are you a no, dogmatic well, th tyrant? This, this, is, this is one of the reasons I love Wooden Hills and love, Greg, the culture you've created here. Um, because I, it goes back to the question, what is the nature of faith? Mm -hmm. right? right? Like Christians have always said, faith in Jesus is the center of, of what it means to be a Christian. But a lot of people have always thought that what that means is we have this absolute sort of psychological certainty about everything, right? And th if you believe that's what faith is, there's no room for questions. There's no room for wrestling with doubts. Right. It's like, shut up and just believe, right? And I love the fact that, that you have always told us that's not what faith means. Because right. faith, the biblical concept of faith is actually a covenant term. Mm -hmm. right. It means to trust in one's partner, mm -hmm. right? And when, when you realize that faith isn't about just uh, kind of, I believe, I believe, believe, don't, don't, don't you know, no right. questions, but rather certainty. it's a heart level thing of I trust even though I might have some questions yeah. and doubts. Now you're freed up to really ask the tough questions, to explore things, to use our mind. I mean, it's God himself who says in, what is it, uh, Isaiah 1.18, come, let's reason together. Yeah. Like God loves wrestling with us uh, in our doubts and questions. And so I think there's a lot of freedom in just being able to say, hey, let's put our challenges out there. Yeah. Like if God's God, He's the God of truth. He can handle any question. Right. He's and not so, going to get offended absolutely. or kicked off by our questions or our doubts. Absolutely. If they're genuine, you know, right. that's assuming they're genuine, you can get into a psychological th thing where people, you know, they don't want to believe something, so they just endlessly right. raise questions. Right. Uh, what about, what about, what about? There's a time where you need to commit, mm -hmm. uh, but that doesn't mean you turn off your brain to do it. Amen. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about allegiance. What is the difference between pledging allegiance to Jesus and pledging allegiance to our country or pledging allegiance to a political party? Um, what is the difference there in trusting those different authorities? The allegiance question. Um, you know, in the ancient, in the ancient world, the first century of, of Christians, um, there was a, with the emperor of, of the Roman Empire basically seen as, as a god, um, Christians were one of the very few groups who refused to actually burn incense to the emperor as a god, and it cost them their lives off. Which was just their way of pledging allegiance. Pledging allegiance. Mm -hmm. And so, um, from the beginning, 
Christians realize if we're going to say Jesus is our authority, there really can be no other authority at that level of life, that supreme authority, that we allow to rival that. Yeah. Now, the, the early church hung on to that for about 300 years, and then Constantine came into play and actually merged the church and state. And we would argue here at Woodland Hills that that was a disastrous moment for Christianity. Well, we started to place whatever nation you live in uh, and your allegiance to that at the same level, uh, kind of combine them with your Christianity. Whenever that's happened in, in church history, Jesus ends up losing out on that deal. Yeah. And, and the nation ends up sort of subsuming Jesus as sort of the little religious icon for their culture. Um, and so we think it's really important to make sure that whatever other allegiances, and it's not, it's not that there aren't other commitments we have in life, but that the, every other commitment has to come under the lordship of yep. Jesus. Amen. And so that, I think, would be also the case for any allegiance to a nation. I think one of the biggest obstacles to... Uh, growing in the kingdom are competing allegiances. Uh, and so, you know, we have a long tradition of having competing allegiances, but pretending that we don't. Yes. You know, where, where it's an, oh, all my allegiance is Jesus, but I'll do whatever, you know, my, if the commander tells me to kill somebody, I'll kill him, uh, even though Jesus says don't do that. And mm -hmm. so it, it's, it's really important to get, when, when Jesus, this is part of why he comes across as a megalomaniac, because he demands everything, ultimate allegiance. Right. Follow me, you can't have two masters. And so to, to be a follower of Jesus is to put him on a pedestal that is above all others. Everything else is minuscule, other commands minuscule in comparison, and they should all be subsumed under that one allegiance, like Paul said. Yeah. yeah. So when you were teaching uh, earlier today, Greg, you laid out the reasons for believing that Jesus is the ultimate authority. And uh, kind of like the, the home run <laughs> was that Jesus literally rose from the dead. <laughs> yes. Um, Fauci could do that, right? <laughs> <laughs> if, if Fauci was pitching, no one was going to hit a home run. No one's even going to take a swing. <laughs> so the, the home run was that Jesus literally rose from the dead, which is a very persuasive argument. But there are a lot of intelligent atheists who even that doesn't persuade them. And I know you've had mm -hmm. conversations with atheists before. And so what are some of uh -huh. the reasons that you hear from them for not believing? And how do you respond to those? You know, I, I think it comes down to... Um, in fact, Paul and I kind of discern this as we're working on the Jesus legend, that the folks who come to uh, skeptical conclusions about Jesus, you know, that, that he's a legend or whatever, the main thing driving that is they simply, they start with a, an assumption that the supernatural just does not happen. Mm -hmm. John Dominic Crossan says, look, I, I, I Every person who's ever died stayed dead. I, I therefore don't believe that, that Jesus literally rose from the dead. And, and depending on how strong that assumption is, uh, the evidence, no matter how, how if that assumption is strong, no amount of evidence is going to convince them. It's just, it, it, the, it undermines all of that. So the way I, I sometimes put it is that if you read the Gospels uh, with the uh, a heart that is open to the possibility that they're telling the truth. Mm -hmm. They give you all the reasons in the world to believe that they're telling the truth. But if you start your study with the assumption that miracles don't happen and people don't rise from the dead, well then, uh, all the evidence of the world... At, at that point, you might go with the mushroom hypothesis because that's more plausible than thinking that it actually happened. Make sense? Yeah. Uh, to the, the question asks, what are some of the arguments uh, that yeah. the skeptics would give. And Greg mentioned one of them, the, the, um, the hallucination hypothesis. Mm. I, 
as, as we looked at those basic arguments against the resurrection when we were doing the book, um, it strikes me that probably the most, the one that most uh, skeptical academics hold most often today is a form of the, uh, the hallucination hypothesis. It's one that goes like this. Um, Peter, Jesus' you know, main disciple, uh, on the very last night that Jesus is being arrested and crucified, Peter denies he even knows the guy. Right? And so the hypothesis then is that Peter, realizing this after the fact, is just heartbroken that in the very moment when Jesus needed him most, Peter, like, denies him. And, and so Peter goes into this real state of despondency and depression and, and uh, that out of this sort of um, deep, deep desperation for how he failed Jesus, he kind of has an emotion, <clears throat> emotional breakdown. And he imagines or hallucinates that he experiences Jesus again. Mm-hmm. And this gives him hope that, oh, that maybe I didn't, like, fail Jesus. And maybe, maybe Jesus is going to rise in the hearts of us. And, and then Jesus, uh, Peter shares with, with, with some of the disciples, and they believe it. And so it's kind of a Peter-centered hallucination hypothesis. Um, I think, Greg, you gave a lot of reasons why any hallucination hypothesis yeah. has a problem. But here's an additional one, is that... Uh, Part of the, the heart of this particular hypothesis is that Peter is going to imagine or hallucinate something that makes sense to him in his culture, namely, oh, Jesus could rise from the dead and this whole problem can be solved. Problem with that hypothesis is we now know, uh, and if, if you're interested in this topic, N.T. Wright has done an amazing book on the resurrection uh, that, that shows this, is that first century Jews did not have a concept of a single person right. arising from the dead in a resurrection. Sort of, uh, uh, you, you can resuscitate somebody. Jesus resuscitated Lazarus, right? But, but Lazarus, when he's resuscitated, he's going to die again someday, right? He's not transformed. Jesus is transformed, a different kind of body. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of idea, ancient Jews did not think of as a single person Right, this right. happening to, but rather this was going to happen to everyone at the end of the age. Mm. And so uh, the problem with this hypothesis is in order for someone to hallucinate something that, ex- that kind of helps them through their emotional breakdown, it's got to be something they, that seems plausible to them. Right. And so this wasn't a, on the plausibility factor for Peter as something to solve the problem. That's a real big problem for and this it, hypothesis. And as Wright points out, that itself calls for, the, the fact that they got this concept of one person rising from the dead ahead of time you got to explain that. That's an utterly right. unique thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not the kind of thing that people just make up on their own. Mm-hmm. And the only explanation that it seems plausible to me is that it actually it happens. happens. Yeah, yeah. And they have to make right. sense of it then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think we have time for just one more, if you guys are ready. All right. Um, so we have said a lot of things. Greg, you've said a lot of things that really have caused people out there to consider who they're putting their trust in and who they're seeing as their ultimate authority. And, and that's a challenging thing, but it's a good thing. And so what would you guys say to those out there who are saying, okay, I realize that, yes, Jesus is an authority in my life, but in reality, there are competing authorities. Mm-hmm. There are other people or things or institutions in my life that I am trusting and how can I make sure that I'm really putting Jesus as that top authority it's such an important Mm -hmm. question you know because I mean we we just finished this series on race uh, where you have all these white Christians who are pledging their allegiance to Jesus Mm -hmm. while engaging in slavery Uh, and and uh, and not I mean our capacity to live a contradiction is astounding and it, it is. It, it, we have the ideas in our head, but it doesn't translate to our heart. And, and so just knowing that about ourselves, yeah. um, 
uh, I, I, we have to, I, I, for one thing, I think we need to be in community with people mm-hmm. uh, who also have an aspiration to be following Jesus. Um, to help them to point out spots in my life that aren't lining up. Mm-hmm. And, and if I'm in a relationship with these people, I don't take that as a judgment or something. If a right. stranger did it as a judgment, but I've invited these folks into my life. Yeah. And because and, uh, we all have got blind spots. Uh, this is, living in this fallen world, that is a perennial temptation mm-hmm. uh, to, to not notice how we've watered down and compromised our allegiance to Jesus mm-hmm. because we, without being aware of it, have these other competing allegiances. And, uh, and so always to be uh, introspective about that, but also to be inviting others in yeah. uh, to help you live out that singular call of following Jesus is all important, I think. That is so good. And Paul, can you speak to, maybe for those who are just beginning to think like this, like what are some of those competing authorities maybe that they should be mindful of or yeah. watching out for? Yeah, and in naming that, what, what are the authorities that can rival Jesus yeah. in our lives, right? And in the ancient world, in a sense, it was easier to, to spot these because what we're really talking about is idolatry mm. here, right? What are the things that we raise up to the level of basically being God in our life? and that therefore compete religiously for our, our, our allegiance, right? Mm-hmm. In the ancient world, you, you knew an idol. It, it was like you go to the temple and you bow down before and worship it. We don't do that today. So we sometimes think, oh, we're not idolaters. Right. The problem is the things that we tend to place in the position of God in our lives aren't things you, you can see. They're ideas yeah. or they're isms, mm-hmm. right? Individualism, mm-hmm. uh, materialism, mm-hmm. hedonism, the, the desire to live for pleasure rather than for the love of God and others. Mm-hmm. So I think these are some of the things we're talking Racism. about here. Racism. Racism. Yeah. Uh, tribalism, the things that create mm-hmm. an us versus them sort of thing. Absolutely. So many, uh, they're, they're sort of ideologies that we worship rather than Jesus who comes as the embodiment of God and gives us basically one ideology, which is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. And so anything that competes with Jesus in that teaching of, of a love-centered gospel becomes an idol for us. And uh, a lot good. of those things are around us in our lives. That's so good. Anything that would cause us to not love others as Jesus would self-sacrificially Self-suffering. I mean that's love. just the key and then doing it in community I think is so yeah. huge you guys thank you you did good you did <laughs> oh, really thank you thank you <laughs> you did good thank you guys for sending in your questions we the really appreciate loves us. can you hear the applause they do all the applause we appreciate you sending in your questions we appreciate you uh, tuning in and just wrestling with these things with us if you want to continue the conversation there's a couple of ways you can do that we have the Musecast that airs on Tuesday afternoons and we'll be talking about this stuff uh, this coming Tuesday. And we also have gathering groups that you can be a part of that discuss every uh, the sermon every week. If you uh, would like prayer now, you can go into our Zoom prayer rooms where there will be prayer partners that are waiting to connect with you and pray with you and uh, just come before the Lord with you on whatever it is that you need. Thank you again for joining us. We're really appreciative. Be blessed, you Next guys. Next week, Sermon on the Mount. Next Bye-bye. week, Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> Bye.